Um, okay, so let's go ahead and let's look at the scripture that can be found in Romans. Uh, this is Romans 2, 6 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. But all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. But show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Well, for all of these scientific arguments for God, one of the most compelling is the existence of scientific constants. What do I mean by a scientific constant? A scientific constant is a fixed variable that undergirds the functioning of the universe. So, for instance, the speed of light is a constant. There's numerous constants like this. Where do they come from? Scientists don't know. They simply know that they are fixed and they have always existed. In fact, they benchmark their experiments against these constants in order to be able to learn new things. There are actually 209 material constants that are necessary uh, that make life possible. So throughout the Milky Way, the universe, the galaxy, these constants are fixed. So, for instance, the polarity of a water molecule, this is the electromagnetic, electromagnetic force between. If it was any less uh, or any more, we could not have life. Or, I'm, I'm speaking these things, you know them all, obviously, the ratio of electron to proton mass, which is exactly 1 to 1,836. 1, this is the difference between the mass. For some reason... If it was 1 to 1837 or 1 to 1835, we would not have life. These are the constants of the universe that create order to all things. This is why Einstein said that God does not play dice with the universe. Constants come from God. In fact, God himself is a constant, right? He is simple which is a theological term that means that his nature and his attributes, they never change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, humanity was created with several constants. The main constant is we were created and designed to live in perfect conformity to the character and nature of God himself. 
If you wonder why you were created, I just gave you the answer. We were made in the image of God and designed to display God to the universe of the excellencies of his nature in how we live. What's very interesting is of all the creatures that were created by God, only two creatures were given the ability to choose to act contrary to their nature. And those are angels and humans. Now, why is that? Well, because we were created in the image of God and God is love, we had to be given the ability to choose whether to love God or not, right? God could have made clones of himself who had no, well, that wouldn't have been a clone of himself. In other words, God is love and you cannot love what you cannot choose to love. So a constant is we were created to image God in the way we live. But there is another constant, that we would be judged in conformity, impartially, according to how we conformed to that law, to that constant of how we were made. Man was given the choice, and man rebelled. That each one of us, at some time in our life, has said that we want to create our own constant. We want to determine what is right and wrong, what is good and evil, who we shall worship and when. Now, we can deny the constant, but the constant remains. If we were designed for righteousness, we have an obligation to live out that design. And there will be a judgment for conformity. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about right here. Paul is giving us the bad news. He's showing us the consequences of falling short of this constant that was created for us. That based on conformity to that constant, none of us merit righteousness for our works. And further, if we seek to redeem ourselves by our conduct, we will never, ever attain it. But even in the midst of giving us the bad news, Paul is showing us that there is hope. There is another path, another way called the gospel. That God has provided another way through Jesus Christ. And as such, we must refuse to seek to justify ourselves by our own merits, but rather to depend on the one who did. So how do we do that? Well, we need to do three things. Number one, we have to own the constant. We have to recognize that it exists and we are accountable to it. Number two, we need to recognize that we all fall short, that none of us live up to what we were designed to be in ourselves. And then finally, we need to trust in the one who did live up to the constant. So let's begin by looking at point number one. We need to own the constant. This constant is referred to in this passage, either by stating what it is or by what it is not. Look in verse 7, that he speaks of doing good. Verse 8, that we are not supposed to be self-seeking or self-centered, but rather we are supposed to be God and others-centered. Right? The greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and your neighbor as yourself. 
fact, Romans 13.10, later Paul will say, love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. In verse 8, we see the constant again, to obey the truth. God's word is truth that we are supposed to conform our lives to. Verse 8, we see righteousness again. Verse 9, we see doing evil as a, I guess, contrapositive. Verse 10, doing good. In other words, the constant is to act righteously, lovingly, to be holy in the way that we live and act and feel and think. And this constant, Paul tells us, has been given to man in two forms. It's been given to us in the law, and it's been given to us in the human heart. Notice verse 12, that all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Paul is speaking specifically of the Old Testament. The Jewish people were given the clearest manifestation of the nature of God and how to live to be in conformity with his nature. See, God's law is a reflection of the character of God. Let me give you an example from the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 10, 17, we hear that the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. The great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribe. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien. And here is the command in Exodus 22 that emerges out of the nature of God. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. See, true worship of God is by living in conformity to his will, which is an extension of his nature. But even those who were not given the law, the Gentiles, still have the law. Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And verse 14, for when the, na- the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. See, built into us is an innate understanding of good and evil, right and wrong, and how we are supposed to live. There was an interesting article in Time magazine in 2022 that asked the question, is morality innate in human beings? This is what it said. That human beings may be a savage species when we want to be, but we're also an exceedingly moral one with a highly evolved sense of right and wrong, good and bad, crime and consequence. Few things illustrate this better than our practice of third-party punishment. The entire criminal and civil system, justice system, is built around judges and juries punishing offenders who have wronged not them but another. And that what followed in this article was a study that was published in Human Behavior that was uh, based on research led uh, by these uh, uh, scientists from Osaka and Otsuma University. And what they did is they discovered that third-party punishment behavior may begin in babies as young as eight months old. And they say it's evidence that morality may be innate. What they did is they took 24 eight-month-old babies 
and they put them in front of a simple video game, which is great training for the future, by the way, in which anthropomorphized shapes, so these little squares with eyes drawn out uh, onto them, moved around the screen interacting with one another. And then they tracked the baby's eyes following uh, these different boxes. And as the babies watched the shape move, they learned an important feature that if they stared at one too long, a square without eyes would fall from the top of the screen and crush it. So once the babies understood this, here's what they did. They ran the thing again, but one of the squares with the eyes would occasionally misbehave and would collide with another one and squish it against the edge of the screen. And after several of these incidents, the babies started to respond with 75% of them directing their gaze at the wrongdoing square and holding it there until the crushing square, square would fall from the sky and destroy it, effectively administering a penalty for its behave, misbehavior. They changed the variables. They ran it in, uh, with five different groups of uh, 24 different babies, and they discovered the same thing again and again. We have an innate understanding of right and wrong, good and evil. Now, I'd like to see them run the experiment of how we treat ourselves opposed to others when they do wrong. See, it's plain to us that there is a God and we owe him honor and worship, and there are consequences of our rebellion. So why is there so much confusion and conflict about God in the world? The reason is because we don't want to be accountable to anyone. And so most of the world invents another God. It probably doesn't surprise you that most people believe in God in the world, certainly in America. But it's not the God of the Bible. It's a good God who punishes evil, but also looks the other way when it comes to us. He grades on a sliding scale. He has a selective memory. And it all seems to work out in the end, that everybody wins at the end. But of course, that makes no sense when you think about it logically. I think that's one of the reasons that Jesus is so offensive. You know, Jesus is like a curse word, right? Go on the basketball court or on the football field. Somebody makes a mistake, they call out Jesus' name when they're angry. I've never heard someone say that about Allah or Buddha or Muhammad or anyone else. And the reason is because they understand that Jesus Christ has come to condemn the world in order to save it. I like Romans 2.15 here where it says that they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. See, we're full of conflicting thoughts that rationalize our behavior. An innate understanding of right and wrong and yet having to find a way to make it so that that square doesn't fall on ourselves. Many invent another God. Some deny that there is a God. 
That even though there are these constants in the universe that show that the universe has been created and designed, many deny there is any God so that we don't have to be accountable to anyone. Because there, if there is no God, there is no judgment. Finally, maybe the third way to go about it is simply not to think about it. That many in our world say, I don't know the answer to these questions, so I'm going to deal with these issues later. I'm going to get busy. I'm going to put on my headphones, and I'm going to go to work. And I don't want to stop and think, because when I do, there is this uncomfortable sense that all is not well with my soul. I remember uh, that uh, I forgot to uh, renew my car registration. And when you don't renew your car registration, you have to go to court. Maybe you can pay it. No, I think you have to go to court. Well, anyways, I went to court, right? Going to traffic court. That's quite an experience. Everyone should go to traffic court every now and then just to experience it. So I'm waiting my turn, you know, and people are coming before the judge and there are all sorts of issues, traffic accidents, registration, and everybody is offering their excuse of why, uh, you know, it happened to them. And I'm not really paying attention. I think I brought a book in. And so I go before the judge and the judge says, you, you, you know, your car registration, whatever. And I just said to him, I, I, I was busy. I forgot. I didn't take care of it. It's my fault. And, and the judge looked up at me like I was some sort of alien. Because he said, everyone comes before me and gives some sort of excuse of, of why they should be let off for what they're doing. And you haven't done that. And I just, I don't have an excuse. I just didn't do it. I got busy uh, and I didn't do it. You know, that's the way we are with God, right? But what we have to do in order to embrace the good news is we have to first own the constant. To recognize that we were not designed for ourselves. That we were designed to love him and to love others. To glorify God and enjoy him forever is why we exist. We have to own the constant that we are accountable to someone other than ourselves. The first step in any recovery program is admitting that there is a problem. And that is what we have to do. Which leads me to my second issue. If we have to own the constant, we also have to recognize that we fall short. Notice verse 6, the constant, he will render to each one according to his works. Verse 6 really explains 8 through 10, right? If you do good, if you do right, all will be well. But if you do wrong, if you do evil, all will not be well. Now, this seems to fly right in the face of the gospel, right? Didn't we just read in Romans 1.17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed for faith, from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And in fact, in just a little while, Paul is going to transition to talking about Abraham and how Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So what's Paul saying here? That salvation is by works? You know, whenever you look at the text in the scriptures, you have to look at what the text says 
And you need to look at what the text means. You need to look at the text in its context. And what Paul is addressing in this passage, the argument he is making here is that there is no one who does good. Right? He's focusing on the bad. He focused in verse 1, maybe more on the Gentiles, not excluding the Jews, that we all do not worship God. He's focusing in chapter 2 on the Jews who think that they are righteous because they have the law, who are presuming on the kindness that God of God who gave them this special status. But he's putting forth the evidence that both Jew and Gentile equally fall under condemnation as regards their failure to do right. Well, what about Christians? Right? Does anyone merit salvation? For it says he will render to each one according to his works. And Paul is saying, according to our record of righteousness, the answer is no. According to the law of God and our adherence to it, the answer is no. Now, is Paul saying that someone could be saved and merit the favor of God if they obeyed verses 6 through 10? And the answer is yes. The problem, however, is that nobody does. See, humanity still lies under the covenant of works. When Adam and Eve, this is the constant we are talking about, when Adam and Eve, when humanity was created, we were created to fill the earth with the glory of God, to image God in the way that we lived and loved one another. And all have rebelled and fallen short. But you see, the covenant of works was not just written off. All who are born onto this planet are still under that covenant, under the curse and sentence of Adam and Eve. And we prove that the shoe fits by the way that we live. God's command still stands that he will render to each one according to his works. But what about grace? We will get to grace, but first we must understand that God's justice is blind. God does not exalt his mercy at the expense of his justice. And in order to maintain his justice, all sin without exception must be punished. Contrary to popular opinion, with God there is no such thing as mere forgiveness. There is only justice. As Christians, we are not excused from the standard. It must be earned for us by ourselves or someone else. But you see, the point that Paul is making is that anyone who tries to gain standing with God on the merits of his conduct will be condemned. And the consequences of that is the wrath and the fury of God. And when you think about it, we would not have it any other way. Because a God who is infinitely holy must have an infinite hatred of evil. We talked about how we distort God by not wanting to own the constant. But there is one other option. To try to redeem ourselves. To try to justify our existence. 
See, that's what religion is. Man's attempt to try to make himself presentable to God. And most people think that's what Christianity is. It's a second chance to turn over a new leaf, to start living right and doing the right thing instead of the wrong thing. To most people, Christianity is moralistic, therapeutic deism. But justice is blind. It also holds the scales. It weighs the conduct, not only the action, but the heart. See, it's entirely possible to do the right thing for the wrong reason. And when you do the right thing for the wrong reason, it's wrong. For all that does not come from faith is sin. See, verse 8, for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth. When you are living for yourself, even if it is an attempt to be justified before God, you're not loving God. You're seeking yourself. See, God looks at the heart. And the standard we were created for is perfection. Let's say I took three people, all who were swimmers. One who was on the swim team when they were uh, in, uh, you know, younger, like my kids. And we went out to the ocean. And I said, I want you to swim as far as you can. They might be able to swim, let's say, 150 yards before they could make it no further. Now, let me take a college swimmer, someone that swam like D1, okay? Go out in the ocean and start swimming. Maybe they could make it half a mile, three quarters of a mile, maybe even a mile if they were good. And then I took Michael Phelps, one of the best swimmers of all time, and said, I want you to start swimming. See how far you can swim. Michael could swim four or five miles, maybe seven or eight miles. But you see, in the end, it's not the question of how far you can swim. It's the question of how far do you need to swim? And the answer as regards the righteousness of God is the Atlantic Ocean. Whether you can swim 150 yards or eight miles is immaterial in relation to the standard. James 2.10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point of it, is guilty of breaking all of it. The standard is to love the Lord with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and our strength, and our neighbor as ourself for our entire life without exception. See, you and I must acknowledge that there is a constant and that we fall short of it. And that regardless of how hard I try to swim, I am not going to make it. I don't know if you're tired of swimming. If you're not a Christian, coming to grips with the reality that I can never have peace, that I can never be right with the one who made me, if it is based on my own attempts, that's exhausting. Maybe as a Christian, you know the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ, and yet it is so easy to fall back into the way 
that I was born into this world, where I have this sense of the, a constant need to justify my existence, to make the grade, to prove that I am worthy of the love of my creator. I'm here to tell you that that is not the gospel. That is counterfeit. The only way we can embrace the gospel is we must give up on ourselves and acknowledge that I am not the answer. Because, as Paul is going to get into in much greater detail, but even here, he shows us that there is another hope, another way called the gospel, that God has provided another way through the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So we must refuse to seek to justify ourselves on our own merits, but rather to depend on the one who did. Which leads me to my final point. We must trust in the one who merited the righteousness of God. You know, what if Adam and Eve had obeyed and fulfilled the covenant of works? What if they had been fruitful and multiplied and them and their offspring had filled the earth with the image of God, constantly seeking to praise and glorify him with all that we did? What if we had built cities for the glory of God and penned poetry and works of literature and music and built bridges and made discoveries? At some point, God would have acknowledged and recognized and glorified us by giving us eternal life. And humanity would have a far different story to tell. But we know what happened, right? But you see, God, who is infinitely just, is also infinitely loving. And so God sent another, his own son, Jesus Christ, who has always existed, who became a man, simultaneously fully God and fully man. The law still stands, but there is glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Jesus came into the world under the covenant of works, and yet he always obeyed, he always loved. He always trusted and fulfilled that covenant. And you see in God's law, one who is worthy can take the place of another who is unworthy if he wishes to do so. And Romans 5.8 tells us that God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ Jesus. No, that's not what it says. Somebody quote me Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in Christ, through trust in Christ, his record becomes mine, and mine becomes his. That Christ redeemed us, Galatians 3.13, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And as we will soon see in Romans 3.21, but now... A righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness comes from God 
through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. See, God can not only change my record, but he also changes my heart. That when I trust in him, I not only receive his record, but I receive his spirit. And I am a new creation. And I begin to do good works by the grace of Christ, not because I have to, but because I want to. The life of Jesus in me begins to conform me to who I was made to be, ultimately culminating in my resurrection. For grace is but glory begun, and glory is but grace completed. And so what is the work that God has for us here on planet Earth? The work of God is to believe to trust in the salvation of Jesus Christ, to depend on the power of his spirit as we seek to live and love through him. I don't know if you've ever heard of the um, uh, business called Orange Theory. I call it purgatory. They're very, very similar. At Orange Theory Fitness, you go and they put you through a series of things that you're supposed to do. The rower, the treadmill, and weights. And they got you on a timer and you actually wear a a belt and it tracks your heart rate. And if you're not in the right heart rate zone, you see it up there. It's like a bad face or something, you know. So you know that you're not working hard enough. And I particularly hate the treadmill. Because the problem with the treadmill is even when you go faster, you don't go any further. Right? You can crank that thing up. You can go till you're sprinting. But guess what? You're not moving three feet. You're running to stand still. There is no rest when you are on the treadmill. But if Christianity is about one thing... It is about rest, about hopping off the treadmill of this endless, endless needing to prove myself to God and to the world. What Jesus has given to you and I is freedom. So we must not look to our record. We must look to his Because in Jesus Christ, we have nothing to hide, nothing to prove, and nothing to fear. In the gospel, God shows us that there is another hope, another path, another way. So to sum up everything that Paul is saying here, God has provided another way through Christ. Refuse to seek to justify yourself on your own merits, but rather depend on the one who did, your Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we do recognize the constant that we were made to image you, and yet we do fall short. 
God, we are um, not yet perfected, but we do not fear because we look not to ourselves, but the one who justifies us, the one who ran the race, the one who finished, the one whom you sent that we might have life and have it in his name. So God, help us to fix our eyes firmly on you, that we would have nothing to hide, nothing to prove, and nothing to fear. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.